0: you're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of en Psychedelia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Ensychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. <laughs> 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 Good afternoon. My name's Nick. This is Psychedelia. Thanks to Freedom of Species, they'll be back at 1 o'clock next week on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM and on digital, and also streaming on the website, 3cr.org.au. Uh, while you're on the website, do check out our Psychedelia program page. You can get in contact with us there. Find our Facebook, Twitter, and our website as well. My name's Nick. Uh, during the show, we discuss a wide variety of issues around drugs. We don't condone or condemn use, and we aren't here to talk about abstinence. Uh, uh, nor recommend you commit a crime, either. <laughs> Coming up uh, in the show today, we're going to be uh, t- talking a little bit about uh, addiction. We're going to be joined later by Mark Lewis, who uh, spoke at the Melbourne Writers Festival this morning. Um And we're also going to be hearing a snippet from one of the Entheogenesis Australis conference uh, with somebody talking about Ibogaine and uh, the use of Ibogaine to break uh, addiction, specifically opiate addictions. Uh, It's also... Uh, International Overdose Awareness Day. International Overdose Awareness Day. Thank you, Ash. (laughs) Tomorrow is International Overdose Awareness Day and we're going to be joined by Greg Denham uh, a bit later who uh, is now working for... He was working for the Australian Drug Foundation. Now I believe he's working for Yarra... Yeah, yeah, but we'll find out from him later. Uh, let's jump into some news.
1: Okay, so in the Australian mainstream press, the the big news this week was more of the same with uh, in regards to ICE. So, the government was talking about uh, in addition to their one million dollar dog in a dealer hotline also potentially quarantining the welfare payments of addicts. I did see
0: that, which uh, I'm not sure how they uh, expect to make more functional uh, human beings by uh, making it harder for them to live.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Scott Morrison referred to New Zealand where the welfare services are used as a uh, kind of referral uh, service for addiction but i think they have a bit of a different philosophy there like they managed to cut their methamphetamine use in half by actually funding treatment so mm. yes. i think he's only talking about part of the thing there yeah, so he might be forgetting something else
0: From the Sydney Morning Herald this week, a man named Matthew Forty, uh, he was a low-level MDMA dealer uh, who dealt the MDMA to a young lady called Jordina Barter, who died recently uh, at a party. I think it was about a year ago now. Uh, He received a 12-month sentence uh, for the MDMA that he sold and the judge, Judge Sweeney, suggested that a high sentence is appropriate to act as a deterrent, which um, seems a, a strange argument to make 50 years into prohibition when clearly sentencing is not a deterrent to people. This guy did not want his, uh, I believe that they were friends and I didn't, don't think he it wanted was his It was about
1: $240 worth, so it's the sort of thing that, it, it's the amount that would cover you and 10 friends, so yep. it's the typical amount that weekenders would generally buy sort of thing. Um, so in in response to, uh, Scott Morrison's comments, there was a bit of a battle of ideas in the press, um, Scott Morrison was quoted as saying ice addiction should not be treated as a health issue but as a social toxin that was destroying communities. Social
0: toxin so that's turning it into a moral issue.
1: So in response to this uh, Matt Knopf the CEO from the Ted Knoffs Foundation has vowed to take a busload of current and former ice users to Canberra to confront Scott Morrison over their plans. Uh, I guess that's a little bit of a You're making policy about people. How about you actually talk to them and see what they need?
0: Uh, Nothing about us without us. Exactly. ABC uh, reported on uh, changing the way we think about addiction. Uh, It was reporting on Dr. Gabor Mate's work on how the brain is shaped by experience and how childhood trauma is one of the biggest risk factors to substance abuse problems in the future. And there was a strong correlation there. Interesting article.
1: The uh, Murdoch Press reported um, some of the government's so-called independent analysis has found that their terrible ICE ads that they were screening have had an impact where uh, half the kids who saw the federal government's ICE ads uh, said that they would avoid the drug and one in three parents who saw the ad spoke to their kids about it. So they're reporting that as a positive, but it very much depends on the nature of things. A lot of young kids see something and then later in life, you know, that yeah, might actually reflect their behaviour. It's not
0: actually something that actually changes the behaviour. It's just in those moments that might make... I remember when I was a kid seeing silly ads and thinking, oh, yeah, drugs, drugs are stupid because I believed it all, didn't understand what was going on. And, and obviously, the ads didn't work particularly well on me because I changed my mind after learning some things that wasn't blatant propaganda. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I think it's troubling. It's, it tends to happen where people might throw out the uh, baby with the bathwater, so to say, because so much good... of the information is bad. Mm. They throw out and, the good with the bad. And there are
0: good ways to educate people. You just need to be honest and you can't be just... Uh, scare tactics tend to be the, the worst kind of ones. Uh, Globalish.com reported on altered states of mind and what they could mean for the philosophy of self and nature of consciousness. Really interesting article. Um, recommend checking that one out. Well,
1: I'll have to do that. There was... Uh, A Maryborough man up in Queensland has been released after spending four months in jail after testing revealed that the ice that he was charged with possessing turned out just to be Epsom salt. So one of the magistrates was critical of the forensic unit there for not getting a hurry up on that one.
0: Uh, Weiss reported on the bust of a German darknet drug marketplace called Shiny Flakes. And this article, uh, was, was a good little ring. The guy that was running the, the darknet marketplace was, I think, 20 years old and running a multi million dollar business out of his, uh, bedroom in his parents' house. Um, but he, he made some mistakes and managed to get the whole website taken by the, by the police in Germany. Oops.
1: Yeah. Um, Just a quick nod to the Country Women's Association that are having a four-day conference in Port Macquarie this weekend. It's the 70th anniversary, and their slogan is, not just tea and biscuits, not just tea (laughs) and scones. Um, They've been long-term advocates for medical marijuana, so just... Good shout out To the ladies there,
0: uh, Vice. Another article from Vice on Spain's burgeoning cannabis social clubs, uh, which are operating because of a uh, uh, because low low amounts of possession and low amounts of growth and uh, use are not considered criminal acts, so they can form these social clubs together. Um, and it, it, it's sort of a bit of a grey area in the law at the moment. But they, have, I think, it's gone from a, a couple dozen to several hundred across Spain now. Uh,
1: A couple of things from overseas in the news in regards to the so-called synthetic drugs that are coming on the scene. Professor Joseph Palmer from New York University uh, interviewed over a 1,000 people out in the club and festival scene in New York and found that 40% of ecstasy users found that it contained a drug that was not MDMA and 54% of them were suspicious that it probably wasn't what they thought it was. Um, They also found... Uh, drugs such as the so called bath salts, the N-Bome series, and MXE were also being used by people sometimes intentionally and sometimes inadvertently.
0: Mm uh report out of new zealand stuff.co.nz uh, reports uh, on the need to change drug laws and and this comes with the recent conviction of a community member and mother of three, three named kelly van galen uh and she's been described by those that know her as a pillar of her local community and she's been sentenced to two years jail in new zealand for having two cannabis plants Wow. Yeah, um, there's an active campaign to appeal this decision. There are petitions on the internet and we'll keep, uh, we'll keep you up to date on the psychedelia Facebook page. Head along to 3cr.org.au and head to our program page and you can uh, get in contact uh, with us there and you can also follow along some of these stories that we've been uh, talking about. Um, All right, well, we're going to uh, have some uh, Entheogenesis Australis uh, conference very soon. Just a a short snippet from um, uh, 2010 uh, when a man named Jason was speaking on uh, his struggle with addiction and use of Iboga to overcome that. Uh, Right now, this is Calicoma with Waves from the Spiral Eyes EP on 3CR Community Radio, 855 a.m.
2: refers to policies, programs and practices that aim primarily to reduce the adverse health, social and economic consequences of the use of legal and illegal psychoactive drugs without necessarily reducing drug consumption. Harm reduction benefits people who use drugs their families and the community If you want to know more about harm reduction in Victoria head to hrvic.org. Dot au. Harm Reduction Victoria is a non-profit, user-based and user-governed organisation which aims to educate, inform, support and advocate for people who use drugs, their friends, families and broader community.
0: This is in Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM digital and streaming live on the website, 3cr.org.au. Up next, Jason uh, spoke at the 2010 EGA conference about his struggle with opiate addiction and use of the West African Tabernath ibiga shrub, uh, which has been used for many generations uh, traditionally as a medicinal plant, and now uh, it's being explored a little bit more uh, for its uh, addictive ...apparent addiction-breaking properties. This is Jason, uh, Ibogaine, in the use of addiction on 3CR.
3: I'd like to tell you how I first found a boga. It was about seven years ago. I was an addict myself. Uh, I had been an addict since the age of 15 years old. At the age of 15, I thought I was a man. I had a 27-year-old girlfriend. And because of this, um, I was allowed to uh, go on the methadone program... Um, uh, ...in Surface Paradise... The doctor had to get special uh, permission from the health department to actually put me on this program. I was stuck on that program for 23 fucking years. 23 years I tried to get off. Reducing, reducing, trying all different sorts of uh, modalities to treat addiction. Nothing worked for me. Nothing worked for my sister. Nothing worked for my brothers. Uh, The whole family was addicted. And then uh, at age 38, after having lost my brother... I was, uh, you know, I'm not a suicidal type of guy, but I wasn't interested in living like that anymore, uh, being addicted, trying to get off. So at 38, I thought, okay, I'm just going to throw myself into some cold turkey detox somewhere. And I contacted this guy uh, who had a rehab, and he um, said, you've got to detox before coming here. I said, well, what's the point of that? That's why I want to come there, is to detox. He said, there's two things that I know of, the rapid detox method, which is very hard on the body, and another one, a controversial Ibogaine. So I joined the Ibogaine list, Mindbox, and um, three, four months spoke to people that had done it, thinking of doing it, providers, and then decided to go to uh, Holland and do an aboga treatment. I remember when I arrived there, I was panicking. I was so scared because I didn't know what to expect. Um, and then once I ingested my first uh, uh, boga, I relaxed. My withdrawal started to go away. Um, I had a beautiful, fulfilling experience through it as well, uh, which I came out of feeling very full, whole, complete. Um, the, the, the medicine filled my heart with love. It actually pulled my heart out and twisted it inside out and then it came back and the big golden jug of honey, it was like liquid love, just poured into it until it just overflowed like treacle. It was a wonderful experience. I came out of it feeling uh, very full. Uh, since then, um, you know, it seems to be that when the opiates leave your body, you start vibrating at a different frequency and start attracting different things. So I found a beautiful wife who I'm married. I've got a good house and I'm now living a normal life that I couldn't have expected to live had it not been for iboga or ibogaine. Uh, What I'd like to do is um, just go through a PowerPoint slide uh, to show you the effectiveness of uh, ibogaine. And uh, if I get stuck here, uh, Ken, (laughs) who's an Associate Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry at the University of Medicine, will jump in and give me a hand. Thanks, Ken the clinical use of Ibogaine, given most often for opiate detoxification and also for dependence on other drugs such as methamphetamine and cocaine, most effective for opiates, because with the opiate you have the withdrawal, the Ibogaine takes care of the withdrawal, typically administered as a single oral dose in the range of 10 to 25 milligrams a kilo of body weight, now here I'm talking about Ibogaine, which is just the one alkaloid, not Iboga, Advantages attributed by those who have been treated with Ibogaine are higher tolerability relative to other standard treatments for acute opiate withdrawal and post-treatment interval of diminished drug craving that may last days to months, sometimes a year or more. Now if someone is using a gram of heroin, they have an Ibogaine treatment, the next morning they have a gram of heroin, they're going to die. So what it does is it takes, it resets the receptors to a pre-addictive state, like you weren't addicted in the first place, so you have to be really careful with that. Low-dose protocols involving repeated administration of 10 to 50 milligrams a day are becoming increasingly common, particularly for the treatment of stimulant dependence. Evidence for effectiveness. Reports from people who have taken Ibogaine. Consistency among reports of treatment experiences and outcomes. The strongest attribution of efficiency is for the indication of acute opioid detoxification. Variable interval of reduced drug craving following treatment, often on the order of weeks to months. So someone has this, the the medicine. uh, For example, if you put someone in a normal detox centre for a week, they come out of it, although they're not physically sick, they're craving badly. Uh, they want to go out there and use, you know, they're not sick, that, so it's like it's... Uh, Iboga deals with this on a few different levels, not just the physical addiction. It deals with it spiritually, uh, emotionally, and probably on other levels that uh, we still don't know about. The reports of individuals who have taken Ibogaine may have mechanistic significance, descriptions of paranormic memory and oneric state, which is a waking dream state. Um, I've, I had a friend once that wanted to call it a remogenic, you know, because began you don't open your eyes and see things move and, and beautiful colors and it's a waking dream. So when you close your eyes, you go into a waking dream-like trip. Uh, you've got one foot in this world and one foot in the other world. So it's uh, not a psychedelic as such. Published Ibogaine case studies. One paper describing 33 treatments for opioid dependence, complete resolution of withdrawal signs in 88%. Open label prospective study in St. Kitts, rating scales indicating resolution of withdrawal signs and symptoms at 24 hours, sustained improvement in depression scale scores at one month. Three treatments, one for opioid dependence. Self-reported abstinence from the drug for which treatment has been sought following a total of 52 Ibogaine treatments. This data influenced NIDA's decision to begin its Ibogaine project. This is Howard, Howard Lotso. June 1962, a a heroin-dependent lay drug experimenter serendipitously experiences a resolution of withdrawal following the use of Ibogaine. Because of this man here, thousands and thousands of addicts worldwide have got their freedom and hopefully millions more will also gain that freedom. Nico Adriens was active in a network of Dutch heroin users involved in Ibogaine treatment. Adriens founded and led the Rotterdam Junkie Bond, the first drug users union. The Junkie Bond greatly influenced Dutch drug policy adopting the harm reduction model. It initiated the first needle exchange in Rotterdam in 1981 as well as other harm reduction interventions. Major statistical findings regarding the Ibogaine subculture. The number of people who took Ibogaine increased fourfold between 2001 and 2006. It's just growing and growing uh, to an estimated total of uh, 4,300 to 4,900. 68% 68% of those people took Ibogaine for substance-related disorders, mainly for uh, heroin detoxification. 53 took Ibogaine specifically for the treatment of opioid withdrawal, i.e. detoxification from typically high levels of physical dependence on opiates such as heroin, oxycontin, methadone, um, and other opiates. I've got a, um, something I'd just like to read to you. It's called The Father's Story. Christopher, my youngest son, then aged 18, informed me in 1999 that he was addicted to heroin and had been on it in increasing dosages for almost two years when he had lived with his mother in New South Wales. I was quite devastated and although I knew that he smoked marijuana and had dabbled in party drugs, the thought of him getting to the stage of actually injecting heroin came as a complete shock, particularly for someone who had and still has a fear of needles. Naturally, as a loving father, I sought out possible treatments and support systems for him and was absolutely shocked and discouraged to discover the lack of proper resources and any sort of medical formal structure to help someone in Christopher's predicament that didn't, who didn't want to be an addict. His original doctor at the time was performing what had been regarded as cutting edge treatment, rapid detox, under heavy sedation in a hospital environment which was very grueling but the results of which seemed to show some promise. What followed however for the next 10 years was a vast array of treatment options, supervised, by the doctor, ranging from psychological counseling, naltrexone treatments, further stays in hospital, undergoing slow supervised detox, naltrexone implants, Sub- subutex, suboxone, and finally methadone. He did it all. For anyone who is reading the story, they will probably be only too aware of what accompanied these 10 years was an absolute hell of thefts, lies, complete lack of trust, scams, deceit, drug dealing to support his habit, paying off debts and drug dealers, getting some of my prized possessions out of the pawn shops, out of Richmond, some for the fifth time. Family disruption and anger and the ever-present danger that Chris's next hit could kill him. The experiences at attending the doctor's clinic over a 10-year period made me aware of the huge social problem that is out there, and to all extent and purposes are are largely ignored by our so-called medical system, which is clearly failing us all. Christopher had been clean in 2008 and part of 2009, but when he returned to Melbourne in 2009, the rollercoaster started again after he met one of his old Vietnamese dealers at a job he was working on in Richmond. Earlier this year, my wife and Christopher's stepmother Susie discovered Ibogaine on the internet and after viewing some testimonials on YouTube by former addicts, I was convinced that this must be all some sort of scam to prey on addicts and their families. It couldn't possibly be the answer, could it? After 10 years of hell... It seemed too easy, and to say that I was sceptical would be an understatement. Susie, however, continued to bombard Christopher and me with the literature and web links on Ibogaine, and after Christopher started to express some interest, it has to come from him... I decided to delve deeply into Ibogaine and its treatment options. I spoke on the telephone with medical experts in Mexico who were only too willing to give their time and often rang me back long distance, only to spend an hour talking on the telephone at their expense. Other other Ibogaine proponents... Other Ibogaine proponents were contacted mainly by email and once again almost without exception were willing to provide their time, knowledge and caring assistance. Clearly there was something here and it wasn't a scam after all, or at least it didn't appear to be. Around this time I contacted the provider whom I had found on the internet and we initially communicated for at least a couple of months by email and then more laterally by telephone. The provider came across as a deeply committed and caring individual and the decision was made to have the treatment. For the preceding days, since we had made the decision to go, I was reinforcing the point to Christopher that this was really his last chance, despite the fact that there had been many other last chances, but it was clear to me that this time Christopher really understood that this meant, what this meant as weeks had seemed almost disowned by his family after some serious breaches of family trust. The provider met up with us at the airport and we travelled to a lovely coastal location that was not only on a beautiful beach, but it was also a calming, a perfect setting for what we all hope to be his rebirth, which is what actually happens in most cases. You feel like you are reborn. You can experience like an ego death. The providers were absolutely amazing. For the first day, we talked about our mutual experiences with heroin, whilst we waited for Christopher to start hanging out, withdrawing, so the provider could start the treatment. This took a little bit longer than we thought, and we went into the second day, but it gave us both some extra time to get to know the medicine. In the morning, I spoke with Christopher for an hour or so before he was to take his first dose of Ibogaine and left him in the care of the providers, Remarkably, performed who remarkably performed a 24-hour watch, taking it in turns to make sure that Christopher was not in any distress. I was kept informed regularly by MSS messages over the next day. Also, but as his father, I have to say I couldn't help but worry about him even though I knew he was in good hands. On the third day I was able to see Christopher, and whilst he was extremely tired and absolutely exhausted, I knew that I was witnessing something something special. Christopher was very weak and had no appetite to speak of for several days. After but each day he seemed to grow stronger both physically and spiritually. He said that after his amazing experience which he likened to a religious awakening, during his treatment he now felt free of his addiction. A major side benefit of this was also the fact that he gave up smoking and for some time after for some time after, but though he is back on them, the quantity per day is nothing like what it used to be. It is now six months since Christopher's treatment, and I've just come back from Cairns, where Christopher is now living, having celebrated his 30th birthday. There are times when I was convinced that he wouldn't make it to 30, but now I can say that he's drug-free. He has no urges or dreams of using heroin again, and that for the first time in 10 years, I was confident about his future. I've thought about Ibogaine and our experiences with it over that time. To describe it as a miracle cure would probably be too extreme. But what it did for Christopher was to give him both a spiritual awakening experience and his first true break in ten years from the physical and psychological cravings for heroin. The true evil in all of this is not the poor unfortunate dealers who traffic in this insidious drug who are mostly addicts themselves, but a combination of the Mr Biggs who rule the heroin trade and the politicians and bureaucrats that lack the foresight and social responsibility to effectively deal with this social disaster by thinking outside the circle rather than continuing with more of the same policies that at the end of the day have really failed to truly help anybody.
0: Entheogenesis Australis. That was Jason speaking about iboga or ibogaine in the use of treating opiate addiction. This is in psychedelia on three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM and. Uh, on digital and streaming, head to the website 3cr.org.au. And while you're there, head to the in psychedelia program page. There are links to our Facebook, Twitter and website there and you can get in touch with us with any comments, questions, feedback of any kind. Uh, my name's Nick and uh, we've just got uh, a bit of a, a, an events calendar. Um, we're going to be speaking to Mark Lewis uh, soon uh, on uh, addiction and he's got uh, some interesting things to say about that. But uh, first up, uh, on the 3rd of September, this third. Thursday. Oh, actually, no. First, day, actually, tomorrow is International Overdose Awareness Day, and um, we've got uh, Greg Denham from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum uh, here. And uh, Greg, you're, you guys are uh, putting on an event for uh, International Overdose Awareness Day. Is that correct?
4: Uh, we've we've uh, organised some um, some signs to go up outside Inner Space, the Needle Syringe Program um, in Johnson Street. We also have one in. Uh, Church Street, near the park there, just before you get to the police station. Um, I'm attending an event in the city at Living Room, which is um, also an event for um, International Overdose Awareness Day, and there's also an event in um, Inner South um, uh, Health Centre, which is um, being attended, I think, by um, one of the ministers. So, oh, excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, there are events uh, all over um, Melbourne, in fact, all over the world, of course, because it's an international mm. event, which was started here In Melbourne uh, by Sally Finn from the uh, Salvation Army about uh, 15 years ago and um, it's gone international. So um, there are lots of things happening. There's a website that's been set up which you can go to to see what's happening um, in an area where you live.
0: And is that uh, – do you know the URL of the website off the top of your head? Or we can post a link later. Yeah, if you yeah.
4: Google International Overdose Awareness Day 2015 you Melbourne, you'll find it. It comes up. And and there's some um, – you can also post some uh, comments, uh, your thoughts about um, you know the, the day, but also there are a number of posts there from people who've lost people very close to them. And, um, yeah, it's well worth taking the time to read what people have said about you know, losing their um, son or daughter or someone close to them. Absolutely.
0: Um, also, so that's happening tomorrow, uh, 31st of August, International Overdose Awareness Day. Uh, on the 3rd of September, this Thursday, uh, there's a debate uh, down in Frankston at the Arts Centre. Uh, the title of the debate is Marijuana Is Now the Time to Legalise? And, Greg, you're actually going to be um, uh, on the, uh, I presume, affirmative team
4: for... Well, I am. That's right, yeah. Nick. I'm going to be <clears throat> speaking for the motion. And uh, there, um, Dan Lubman is going to be on my team as well from Turning Point Centre. And... Uh, we also have a, a student, um, Andrew, who's going to be part of our team. So, yeah, it should be a, an interesting but also um, a, f- a fun evening uh, uh, on the issue of legalising marijuana. So we're hoping to get a, a big crowd. It's done through Monash University. So, yeah, it should be a good night. Uh, and people can
0: get uh, tickets. I don't think there's any uh, any cost on it. You just have to send uh, send them an email. Uh, we'll put up a link on the uh, on the Facebook page if you want to head along to that. Uh, the 9th of September, which is, uh, next uh, next week, sometime. No, I don't <laughs> know off the top of my head It's a week uh, after <laughs> Johan Hari uh, is coming to Melbourne uh, He's the author of the book Chasing the Scream And will be speaking live at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre With a panel discus- discussion afterwards And tickets are selling fast for that one uh, The early birds are out And oh, Greg's going to be on that panel as well I am, <laughs> <of> that's <laughs> right uh, I believe um, Fiona Patton uh, from the Australian Sex Party And uh, there was one other person James Rowe from uh RMIT RMIT excellent yeah.
4: so um so it should be a good night
0: yeah, yeah it it will be a good night so uh tickets uh are available uh if you look up Johan Hari in Melbourne you can find those uh pretty quick and then um uh, one That is our own, actually. On on the 20th of September, um, a a group of Americans have decided uh, to form a coalition called the 920 Coalition uh, to celebrate the psilocybin mushroom on the 20th of September. And we're actually going to be having our own event here in Melbourne put on by us, by the radio show. We're going to be holding that at the Fitzroy Beer Garden uh, from 3.30 Sunday afternoon on the 20th of September, straight after the radio show. Uh, I'll I'll have some more information about that soon, but it looks like we'll have somebody uh, talking about uh, the local uh, Australian species of psilocyte mushrooms. Uh, we'll also have some books for sale on, on mushrooms. Uh, we'll have some music and uh, hopefully a little art exhibition too. Uh, so it should be quite an interesting event. I'll have more details uh, for that soon. Uh, this is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on digital and streaming live at 3cr.org. Dot au. You're listening to In Psychedelia. My name's Nick. And, uh, on the phone, uh, we have Mark Lewis who, uh, spoke about addiction at, um, the Melbourne International Writers Festival. He was speaking this morning at Fed Square. Ash, I believe, uh, you were there.
1: Yeah, I was there. It was an excellent talk.
0: Yes. And, and Mark, your talk was on, um, addiction and you're taking a different, uh, approach to, uh, understanding addiction. Uh, can you tell us first what, what the generally accepted model of addiction, the medical model of addiction is?
5: Yeah, the prominent model right now is um, uh, yeah, it's the medical model. So the idea that addiction is a disease, uh, it's defined as a chronic brain disease um, by the current generation of researchers. And, and uh, it's mostly um, overseen by the medical community, the psychiatric community, and medical researchers and so forth. That's the predominant model.
0: So what are you uh, proposing as an alternative or as an alternative to understanding the issue of uh, substance use disorders or addiction?
5: Right. So what I'm saying is that, uh, no, it's not a disease. And there's a number of scientific reasons why it's, it's not only lazy, but incorrect to describe it as a chronic brain disease. And I, I've been doing neuroscience for the last 15 or 20 years, so I come at it from a neuroscientific angle, and i say, look, we agree on the findings, we agree on the data that there are brain changes um, that accompany addiction, but I interpret those as learning, as changes that are due to uh, deep, accelerated learning processes, learning highly salient, highly motivating uh, um, behaviors and thoughts that go with them, and that's how I interpret the data, and then I kind of flesh that out with stories about um, rather detailed biographies of addicts and what they've gone through and look at how the various brain changes in addiction correspond with their experience but without ever having to dip into medical um, uh, terms and medical philosophy and medical uh, analysis because I just don't think that fits.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things that I found in your talk today was the, the slide that you showed about the recovery of the gray matter in the, the prefrontal cortex after six to right. 12 months of uh, abstinence it's kind of like your right. brain kind of recovers but along with that maybe kind of brings the shadow of the addiction along with it so it's not like your brain's made new it's just kind of refreshed right. but it has this memory of of the addiction and the triggers you know that go along with that
5: yeah so i see addiction as a deeply learned habit and most of the most of what we learn becomes solidified concretized in the brain and in the and in our behavior and in our, in our mind and so they become habits. I mean, language is a habit and parenting is a habit and your religious beliefs are a habit or lack thereof is a habit. All these things become stabilized. Addiction is another example of a habit, but one that runs very deep and is hard to break for various reasons. But um, but yeah, so people do recover. And the changes in the brain uh, can be overwritten by a new set of changes in the brain Because there's a fair bit of evidence that the brain never stops changing. It's meant to change. It's designed to change. And it changes in addiction, and it changes when people come out of addiction. And yet, as you say, there's still a trace. There's always imprints or footprints in the, shall we say, in the circuitry of the brain, um, even though uh, you've developed new skills, new habits, new ways of thinking that bypass the addictive habit, the addictive uh, um, organization of your of your of your
0: thinking and your actions. There's quite a um uh, an interesting philosophical point that I think uh, uh, treating addiction in the manner that you're describing is quite different from treating it as a uh, as a as a medical disorder because one feels like uh, the agent in the equation that person who is addicted is um is lacks autonomy they they have been overcome by that drug that drug now possesses them uh with whatever it's right. it's spirit of controlling their their habits is right. well well the way that you're saying it is uh you're saying that no you still have the the power uh essentially i think there is a is is there a, 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 a an interesting philosophical point to be made in there
5: yeah really actually very interesting it's it I mean, this is exactly what Nora Volko, the president head of NIDA, and it was well known for um, hammering home the message that addiction is indeed a disease, and she actually calls it a disease which robs people of their will. Because this is a disease that that uh, yeah, that takes away people's willpower, so people's capacity to to um, to choose or to make decisions. So, but. It, so so then you get this issue of disease versus choice. Is addiction a disease or is it a choice? Well, I'm not saying that it's a choice in the sense of a simple choice, like whether to take you know, the freeway or whether to go through town and in a way to somewhere. It, it's a, because choice itself is a complicated thing and it's difficult to understand. How much does choice itself involve habits, habitual ways of thinking? How much does it involve uh, novelty? How much of it is actually you know under the guidance of your intentions? or how much of choice is, you know, is, um, <coughs> shall we say, it comes about by virtue of, ha- of, of habit, context, previous associations, uh, uh, you know, this, and then that gets to the philosophical question of, well, what is pre-real anyway? And it's mm. that's the same. And it's a deterministic world and it's a deterministic universe. then doesn't one state just follow the next, the, uh, the preceding state? And doesn't that happen in the brain? Because the brain is a physical system, too. So where, do, where does the self... Where does intention ever come in and change this cascade of events? Exactly. And I don't, right, so I, yeah, and I don't get deep into that philosophical issue because it's very tricky in itself. But mm. rather, I kind of go with um, the idea that however we define free choice there, there are at least points along the way in which we can nudge our, our habitual, um, the path that our brain is on, so to speak, that fatalistic. As we can nudge it in one direction or another, and people do. People say, "Okay, I wanted to go this way," and they work hard. They do something. They develop some habits. They learn some tricks. And guess what? It changes. It changes paths. It changes tracks. They're on a different lane. They're on a different route. You see you know what I mean? So that's one way of, without getting lost in the philosophical debate about free will, you can still talk about the capacity for empowerment and choice, and some ability to to. Um, Push yourself in the direction that you want to
1: go. Exactly. There was something that I wanted to ask you about in relation to really strong kind of peer bonding, like intimacy. And and like I've heard you use that as like a metaphor for addiction, like highly motivated behavior where there's somebody that we're attracted to and it's like we almost become addicted to that person. And the way that in our society, the first instinct for people when when they're kind of meeting somebody is to alter their state like have a coffee, it's have it's a work. beer, is to yeah. alter their state. So, you know, even if I that's do. just a coffee or a beer or they smoke a joint together and like yeah. I wonder if you'd thought much about the way that that kind of interacts, particularly okay. with your own experience of addiction and you kind of get this trigger where the person that you're with is the person that you hit that altered state with. So it's, it's kind of like a constant trigger sort of thing for your addiction.
5: I never thought about it that way. It's really interesting. Um, so you're saying there's kind of an over, overlap or conflation between the attraction to people and the attraction to getting high in some way.
1: Yeah, I mean, like even for myself, when I've uh, been addicted to tobacco at times in my life, like often it's because I've smoked a joint with somebody that I've, uh, not a joint, well, maybe a joint or, or like a cigarette with, um, with somebody yeah. that I've been spending time with.
5: So these are the kinds of associations that I was, that I meant. Um, strong associations that actually, you know, guide behavior this way and that. Just, just based on very little. Just a, a, a small association with a time, a place, or a person can, can get you, when there's a lot of different options available, can get you to go with one rather than the other. But, but as far as the specifics about interpersonal connections, I think when we enter an interpersonal connection, there's always some anxiety about well, about being seen, right? About the other person seeing you. And keep, I mean, everyone has a strong susceptibility to shame, to being, yeah. um, to being seen through, to being criticized, to being found wanting or found lacking in some way. And so I guess we can calm that. We can, we can help to, um, minimize that by having a substance there, a beer, a drink, or a smoke, because okay, well I know what a beer gives me and I know what you no know, an alcohol buzz gives me. So that helps me not be so dependent on what this person gives me. Whether and conversely we might we might feel too much desire or attraction for that person. Um and say, Oh well, you know I could fall into this person the way one falls into an addiction. So again Having a beer handy might be a way to, um, you know, to offset that, to, to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to build, a little, build, build in a little detour so that you don't just come face to face with the hazards and uh, the, both the joys and sorrows that another person can bring you. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on the website 3cr.org.au. We're speaking now with uh, Mark Lewis, who uh, is uh, over in Melbourne on uh, a promotional tour for his uh, new book. Um, I did actually have all the book information uh, in front of me earlier, and now my laptop's died. So we'll grab the the book information off you um, shortly, Mark. But I've also got Greg Denham from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum in here, um, and he'd like to uh, ask you a question? If that's right,
5: sure. And by the way, the name of the book is "The Biology of Desire: Why Addiction Is Not a Disease." So, yeah, if you can't read it, that's that's if you can't read the name off the computer, I'm just letting yep. you know. <laughs> Thank you.
4: <laughs> yeah, Mark, um, welcome to Australia, and I, I look I look forward to uh, reading your book. I'm particularly interested in um, the issues, uh, and I, I work with a lot of people who work with young people. And um the issue of um, addiction and, and you know chronic dependency that that is um, quite um, apparent or particularly problematic drug use that 's quite apparent amongst young people in terms of self medication from early trauma from early um, traumatic events yeah. in their lives and I just wonder how yeah. how do you how do you and I agree with what you 're saying to, you know one hundred percent by the way I just wonder how do you deal with that in terms of you know, um, the 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 drug use is functional. It's there to to you know, in terms of med- self medicate that type of thing. But how do you how do you deal with that if a person's got a you know a dependency on a drug and it, and it's providing you know a function in terms of dealing with their with their tra- trauma? How how do you deal with that in terms of a, someone someone in terms of alternatives to that? How do you you know? Do we do we say well look maybe there are people that just that do need to have a drug. And you know, to be prescribed a drug to to deal with that particular trauma to those early early events, or can we can we say, well, okay, there are alternatives to that 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 you know, um, you know, we, we need to look at other ways of dealing with that.
5: Yeah, that's that's, that's a very good question um, about um, the the impact of early trauma and early abuse and all these things. I I, I think, and I talked about today, and it's in my book as well. In my book, I trace um, the the lives of five addicts that I've gotten to know very well through Skype interviews. Uh, each of whom got into addiction to a different substance, and one of whom had a deep eating disorder, and how they got back out. Um, and I, I I integrate that with with what I'm saying about the brain and addiction. So I kind of put I kind of wedge the brain stuff into these stories in a way that makes it much more palatable, goes down quite easily, um, and and is not too challenging. Uh, but all of these people have had, all except, well, I think pretty much all of them, have had some difficulties in childhood, which, which you, you can connect to the addiction. Uh, that, that left in their wake anxiety or depression or a lot of self-criticism. The woman who had an eating disorder had a, a mother who was extremely critical of her of her own appearance and so forth. So you can make these connections. And indeed, the self-medication model of addiction is really accurate a lot of the time. People who feel great don't usually end up being drug addicts so when it's working and you're taking a drug i mean if it's working in a way i don't i don't take a moral stance towards addiction whatsoever so if it's working i'd say yeah okay a lot of people are on antidepressants um why not if it's helping them live without depression i don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it now if you're taking heroin and the heroin is costing them 100 bucks a day and they're becoming physically addicted to it and if in the process heroin is becoming the source of anxiety rather than just the uh, the the, um, uh, 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 the way to alleviate anxiety, and, and that's really the catch twenty two, right? Is because the addiction itself becomes the source of trauma. Getting enough money, being able to get the drug, making sure you have it for tomorrow, making you know the, the problems that it creates in relationships, the problems it creates with, with the law, and with society in general. So the thing is. Addiction to self-medication, it, it just doesn't work for very long. And how, how then do you deal with it? Well, okay, so why is it okay to get antidepressants from your doctor but not get, you know, powerful opiates that might also make you feel better? And there's no good moral reason for that. I think it's somewhat arbitrary. It has to do with the history of the war on drugs and all that stuff and the way the, way Western, the Western world has come out. It was strongly opposing the use of uh, opium and opioids. So you um, hear <laughs> what I'm saying. I don't I don't think there's no, a moral or yeah. ethical or normative way to deal with it. It's really all, it comes down to practicality. If you're in England, you can get heroin just because you're a heroin addict. You get it from your doctor. And okay, if that allows you to lead a more normal and content life, I don't see anything wrong with it. But in most countries, in most parts of the world, it's just not possible. It doesn't work. Hmm.
4: No, I agree 100%. Thank you, Mark. We uh,
0: yeah. haven't got much time left, but I wanted to quickly touch on something. Uh, earlier in the episode, we were listening to uh, a, a someone who was a, a, an opiate addict for 23 years, had been on all sorts of programs to try and get off, and uh, managed to get off opiates uh, because of Ibogaine treatment. I was wondering what your uh, thoughts are, or if you've uh, read much, about uh, using various psychedelics in the treatment of various kinds of addiction.
5: Um. Oh, you need you need the room. Oh sorry, I'm just uh That's right yeah. Um, um yeah well I've heard of a fair bit about Ibogaine and uh it's um I don't know much about it personally. Um Ayahuasca is another one of these these powerful drugs that helps people deal with, with maybe their addiction in a different way. Um but yeah, hey, whatever works. I mean hmm. you know, uh, being being Addiction is miserable. It's just miserable. Being an addict is, is not fun. It's a form of suffering. It's at the very least boring. And at the worst, it, it really destroys lives and, often, uh, and, and can can lead to death and dysfunction. I mean, really serious dysfunction. So whatever works, if I begin work, yeah, do it. It's great.
0: And I, I think there is something, um, something more to be learned about what the, what various psychedelics do, because I think it has a lot to do with that learning process that you're talking about and being able to self analyze that in a, a pretty, uh, unique way. But this is all going to be future science because right now, uh, yeah, they're, they're all classed right. in the, in the same, uh, area. You know, these, these non addictive substances are, um, classed in the same area as, uh, but more potentially addicting, uh, substances and no research happens. So, uh, We'll wait for that. Uh, now, Mark. Yeah,
5: uh, we have to we have to get there.
0: Exactly. Uh, so you're you're here uh, uh, promoting your uh, book. Can you give us some uh, a, a quick snippet on the book and and where people can get it from?
5: Uh, yeah, it's called The Biology of Desire. Why addiction is not a disease. It's published by Scribe, and you can get it just about anywhere. I mean, I'm sure it's in the stores. Uh, they're selling a lot of them here. At can I pull up the quick Apparently, it's the best-selling book at the festival, at the Melbourne Writers Festival. Except for congratulations, a, oh, one book. Except for a children's book uh, by an author whose name I don't remember.
0: But
5: other than <laughs> that, yeah, thank you. It's, I'm very pleased by that. So it's selling well. It's selling here at the festival, and it's uh, I'm sure it's available in from the your stores. local bookstore. And I, yeah, and I imagine
0: there are, there's an Amazon.au. Figure. There is, yes, yes. You can uh, probably find it on Amazon or just support yeah. your local uh, bookstore. Uh, head along yeah. and grab that, The Biology of Desire. Mark Lewis, thanks yeah. for joining us on In Psychedelia today.
5: Yeah, you're
0: very welcome. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Uh, this is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on digital and streaming live at the website, 3cr.org.au. We don't have much time left. I had another song to play, but that's all right We can uh, we can put that off for uh, next week because I wanted to – well, well, I've got uh, you, Ash, and Greg uh, here. Uh, a quick chat more about international overdose awareness day obviously uh, raising awareness for overdose but it's it's not just um about the fact that overdoses do happen but the fact that these are these are people uh that that people's friends family members brothers sisters uh lovers uh who who die uh, f- for a relatively avoidable reason and that's uh you know that that's something that we need to work on i think and uh, so what what sorts of um what sorts of are there any campaigns in particular uh, at the moment going on uh, that would support people uh, who uh, m- might have that that problem that issue? Yes,
4: yeah, certainly, and um, I think raising awareness amongst people who who use drugs, particularly people who use opiates, um, is is an ongoing issue. And uh, you know there are people in the community who are probably more um, vulnerable than others, and we know, for example, that people who are um, particularly men who, ex- who are exiting from pr- the prison system are particularly vulnerable. And, uh, you know, um, overdose is, is a, a common occurrence amongst people who... Um, men who, who use um, opiate substances, heroin, etc. once they depart from um, prison. And there are campaigns to ensure that, um, you know, there's... Uh, Increase access to methadone. Methadone is a very good way of preventing overdose. Um, not, not many people might will, might know this, but the majority of overdoses occur in people aged between 28 and 32 years of age. It's not mm. a young person's issue. It's, it's more around 28, 32, around, around that time. And that's when... A lot of people um, who have been using drugs for quite some time start to make changes in their life and start start to um, i guess cut back on on their um, on their heroin use and uh, the, um, <clears throat> and the reality is that people at that time also um, are using other drugs and, that, and they may use heroin occasionally they may cut back and what happens is their tolerance becomes quite low and an overdose is is an amount of a drug that that 's more than the body can tolerate mm. once once that tolerance goes down um, they 're more susceptible to an overdose so they're the sorts of things we need to raise awareness about.
0: International Overdose Awareness Day is tomorrow. Uh, we'll post some links up uh, uh, about it. Head along to the three CR uh, to our uh, program page on 3cr.org.au. Uh, you can get in contact with us, Facebook, Twitter, or via the website there. Uh, we'll be back at 2 o'clock uh, from uh, next week, and Queering the Air is up next on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for listening.
2: This is Encyclopedia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. Call one 236 In psychedelia, we'll be back on three CR from two p.m. next Sunday.
0: You've been listening to Psychedelia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Psychedelia program page.